Welcome to Deep Pacific, a Pacifica podcast that shares Islander views and voices. I'm Kalani Regis, your millennial indigenous host who can't draw or play an instrument to save her life, but I can definitely admire the people who can. We are recording in the third week of August 2020, when Black lives all around the world still matter. RIMPAC is still happening in Hawaii. I would like to begin with the acknowledgement that I am recording on Guahan, Ki Islas Marianas, currently a territory occupied by the U.S. I am not from here, so I am a settler. Although I am Chamorro, it is still with respect that I occupy this land and space. We begin every episode with a quote from an indigenous person that resonates. Today's quote refers to climate change and activism. The quote goes, That's where I see poetry and art being so effective. It can't exist without science, without politics, without some type of work. But art can contribute something entirely different. And it shows a human face to these issues. That quote was an excerpt from Kathy Jetno Kitchener, who is a Marshallese poet, spoken word artist, instructor, author, activist, co-founder, and director of the Marshallese environmental youth nonprofit called Jojikum. She graduated from UH Manoa with her master's in Pacific Island Studies and has a collection of poetry entitled Yep Jaltok. I hope I am not butchering that. Poems from a Marshallese daughter. She has performed poetry for national news networks and at the UN, and she is currently a climate envoy for the Marshall Islands in the UN. She is also one of the candidates for the Pritzker Emerging Environmental Genius Award. She speaks on the power of poetry and the role of art in the global struggle for climate justice. You can find many of her videos on YouTube. I will include a link to the video where this quote is taken from in our show notes. This quote resonated because this episode will be about artivism or art as activism and how indigenous Pacifica artists are using their art to promote their activism and their culture. You will finally get to hear from Carol Ann, a storyteller from Pohnpei, Teatuahere, a poet of Tahiti, Bryant, a mixed media artist of the Philippines, mostly digital art, and a few first-time contributing artists, Danny Deru, a recording and digital artist and video producer, Zan Simon, a weaver of Coronan Flores, also known as Moar, both with roots in the Marianas, Saya, a Samoan diaspora, Sotero, or young man, living in the States, as well, and finally, last but not least, you will hear from Rhonda, an indigenous Fijian Taiviti recording artist. We will end today with a discussion on a brand spanking new paper, fresh out of the kitchen, on representation and diversity of Pacifica scientists in academic institutions in Aotearoa. So, let's do it. Let's dive in. The driving question of today. How do Pacifica people use art as activism? Our episode is on artivism. As many of us know, FESPAC, the Festival of the Pacific, is one of the biggest events where Pacifica art can be seen, heard, felt, created by many of us. I personally attended FESPAC in 2016. It's supposed to happen every four years, but due to COVID, FESPAC 2020, which was supposed to happen in Hawaii, has been postponed. FESPAC was one of those events that I had attended and volunteered at at the fisheries booth for Guahan. It was really 
something else. I had never felt so connected to the Pacific until I went to FESPAC. I didn't even know some of the delegations that were sent. I didn't know they existed. You know, I was incredibly ignorant before. And after attending, it was like, it was the same thing as how I feel when I go to a rally. Before you go to a rally, you don't really know that feeling of getting caught up in something and involved and you don't feel the cause as much. But if you go, once you start going, you cannot stop going. And so once I went to FESPAC, I could not stop thinking about our Pacifica cultures and how interconnected, how intertwined we are. So this episode on artivism is my ode to Pacifica art. Our brains process events and respond to them differently than we would to hard facts. So for example, you can hear the fact that currently about 30% of the land in Guahan is occupied by the U.S. military. And that doesn't hit the same as when you look into the brown faces and see the empty outstretched hands of the indigenous Chamorros of Guahan, my people, begging for money on the side of busy intersections to get by. Oftentimes these people are disabled or impoverished, so they have no other means to provide for themselves. This is in the land that their ancestors originally inhabited. That is incredibly sad. And you see that as a theme throughout every place that America has touched. So how does 30%, how does that statistic relate the human aspect You know, how does that fact have such a huge effect on life for Chamorros on their own land? Any number of things, classes, maps, lectures, can help us understand this. But, you see, art can help us understand this in a powerful, lasting way. Art leaves an impression on our hearts, an imprint in our mind's eye. Part of what art can do is make abstract concepts concrete. Art educates, it enlightens, it can advance political awareness, it can uplift, renew your spirit, amplify a message, ground a people. Art can have multiple meanings among people, even just to one person. A piece can speak so many different ways, depending on that person's life experience. And if you share anything of a life experience with someone, geographically, religion, or even watching the same television shows growing up, you can connect through a piece of art. Art is described as a tool to some, uh, a weapon to others, or even as unnecessary or a frivolous luxury to others. The thing about art is that you cannot create if you don't have the means, meaning a creative people is one that are provided for. You'll see one of our contributors mention this in her piece. Creativity, innovation. It's hard to accomplish when you're worrying about where your next meal is going to come from or your kid feeling sick and you have to bring them to the hospital and you can't afford the bills and so you have to work more. You know, it's hard to create in those circumstances. Hard, but not impossible. Although art doesn't always solve the world's problems, It definitely serves as a function, as being necessary for change. What we are doing as activists, it may not be enough, but artists give us the necessary steps on the way to enough. And I just want to be clear, I am no artist. The closest way I can reach art is through my words. The best way I know how to 
is to promote and uplift the voices of artists who are much more talented than I in that department. And so, without further ado, let me do that. Our first contributor today is Carol Ann from Ponpei. Kasalelie, my name is Carol Ann Carl, and home for me is the beautiful island of Ponpei in the Federated States of Micronesia. I am presently a settler in the Kingdom of Hawaii on the island of Oahu. I am a storyteller, and my art form is storytelling. The mediums I use to do so, most often than not, are written and spoken word poetry. The stories I tell are Ponpeian origin stories. In some pieces, I try to include stories from the rest of the Micronesian region. In Ponpeian culture, my ancestors used storytelling as a means to pass down knowledge to the next generation. In this way, as time and logic change, these stories allow my community to interpret past events in ways that are relevant to their present. Origin stories are more than just stories. They are our indigenous history. Although Western education has taught me that history is defined as a written record of the past, as a Ponpeian, I understand that history is not simply ink scribbled on paper. History is not static. It cannot be understood solely from one perspective. History is as dynamic as the ocean my ancestors call home. It lives in the lineages tattooed on our skin, the movements in our dances, and the vibratos in our chants. Oral history, by its own nature, breathes. It is our past as it lives and breathes into our present and as it continues to breathe into our future. Taika Waititi put it best when he said, We are the original storytellers. For Oceania, storytelling is an art form rooted in the history our ancestors wove into their sails and used to guide their canoes across vast stretches of ocean. The word for origin story in Masan and Pompeii is soipat. Soi means story, and pat is the root for a word that means to plant. A seedling is a sign for birth and the beginning of life, which is what our soipat our origin stories describe. The birthing of our islands from the ocean to the mountaintop and the birthing of our people. In telling these origin stories, we sow seeds of the past into the ears of those who hear them. Whether an individual chooses to take care of these seeds, encouraging them to take root in their consciousness so that they can in turn plant these seeds and anyone willing to listen is their own choice. A seedling is the role I hope my art plays in artivism. A reclaiming of indigenous narratives, an empowering of youth by showing them that their history is an ocean from which the multiplicities of their identities erupt as islands. Using this self-imagery to navigate their realities. I want these seedlings to show others what they showed me. My bones are made from the basalt rocks of Nanmatal, my blood the ocean waters of Namweas, my skin the rich soils of Matalani and Nech. That every drop of ocean, every ounce of rich soil that makes a Ponpe is beautiful, and because I am Ponpean, I am an extension of my island's beauty, 
wherever I find myself in the diaspora, just as everyone is an extension of their motherland. Fuente and oral tradition, the methodology through which I learned it, taught me that our history, the sheer knowledge of it, is our life force. Imagine a cup filled with water. The water in that cup is your life force. Sharing the oral tradition is like tipping the water little by little out of your cup. That act is seen as giving bits of your life force away. Which is why traditionally, Batapat storytelling is an intentional act that does not come freely. Sharing comes at a cost. Knowledge, origin stories, that life force is something that you have to wait for. It's not something that is asked for because asking would be intrusive upon someone else's life force. I am indebted to the men who are so willing to give their life forces to me. Some of them have passed on well before their time. Part of me thinks that because storytelling is a male-dominated space where I'm from, they just kind of assumed that I wasn't actually listening as they shared those stories with me while we were sitting and drinking sakao because I'm a girl. I've come to understand that they shared these stories with me because they saw that my cup was empty. I needed that life force as a young Puanpian girl who has lived the majority of her life in the diaspora. They saw my hunger for it. They saw my desperation to understand myself as a post-colonial Puanpian girl in a post-colonial world. I started learning when I was 12 years old when we moved back to Puanpe and started practicing storytelling when I was about 16. Because the way Puanpeans tell stories, it really does take that long. Um, and I'm still learning. My storytelling found tangible evolution in 2018. The hunger and desperation I saw and many of my peers and the youth that I worked with coming up to that year is what pushed me to create Kowarwar, my blog and the main platform where I share the art of storytelling through poetry and historical analysis. Writing about how I apply the lessons and narratives in the oral traditions in the ways I perceive my present and how I attempt to navigate my future. I want everyone who reads or listens to my work to realize that these stories aren't just things our elders tell us for fun. They serve a purpose. I saw this purpose come to fruition through a collaboration piece I did with Mina San Nicolas, a Chamarita graphic designer and my Micronesian sister. The piece we did is entitled Li Roroki Wei, a retelling of her story. Emphasis on the Li in Li Roroki and instead of history, her story. In this piece, we attempted to reframe Buenpein origin stories and other Micronesian stories around the women that play big roles in them. One of the readers here in Hawaii shared with us that immediately after reading this piece, she took the hands of her two young Chuki's daughters and recited to them one of the stanzas word by word. The stanza goes, Of Chuki's women. The story of the silent warriors who are nurturers and caretakers of land and family. The woman whose very existence resurrects the stories of our ancestors who demand never to be forgotten. Let me tell you of Chuki's women. Women whose presence commands respect. Women whose silence is resounding thunder. 
who tirelessly weave pride into our communities. This is one of many of my favorite stories that has come out of practicing my art. And to all the blossoming storytellers and artivists out there, I want to leave you with this. In life, I aspire to be like the ruins of Nanmatal, to have presence and hold space, to be a physical reminder of my island's history as it lived and breathed in the past, in the present, and as it continues to breathe into the future. A presence whose silence is as deafening as its roar, a space that's intentional when it's still, and understanding that without Buenpe, I would not be as I am or who I am because Buenpe is me. I aspire to be like Nanmatol because even if people get my story wrong, I will continue to stand solemn and be a beacon of home. I say pat roro wel gnemamail, amen memangi nakainanela, potraki me papa, kalangan. Sainama Asi Carol Ann. Carol Ann is a storyteller, poet, and spoken word artist of Pohnpei in the FSM, the Federated States of Micronesia. So Carol Ann was saying that our ancestors used storytelling as a means to pass down knowledge to the community, and that's true. Origin stories or soipa are her indigenous history passed down. And as she was saying, you know, she speaks so poetically, oral history by its own nature breathes. Pacifica people are the original storytellers. And Carol Ann hopes that her stories are planted as seeds in the minds of the people that she tells them to. Like she mentions, storytelling and sharing stories can deplete one's life force. You cannot ask to be told stories because it is intrusive and that goes against the culture. For the same reason, you don't go into an islander's house with your shoes on, look into their fridge, and call their mother, the matriarch of the house, by her first name. Does that all sound familiar to you? The type of person who would do that? Yeah. No. It is incredibly intrusive to ask for stories, which is why I love that Carol Ann felt comfortable enough to share this knowledge with me and you, my awesome listener. If you are listening to this podcast, your life force has literally been getting filled by all the stories that we've chosen to share with you as Pacifica people. And some of you have reached out to us and even told us this in your own ways. And just know that I'm glad that you appreciate it. And we also appreciate you. Carol Ann mentions that she has a blog. I actually read her blog before I reached out to ask her to be featured on this podcast. And it is beautiful. One of her stories was featured on the first episode on identity and so many people resonated with it. Remember, it was the one about the canoe and diaspora and the tree. If you haven't heard it yet, definitely go back to the first episode on identity and give it a listen because we get regular messages about people really resonating with that piece. So Sainama Asi again, Carol Ann, for your beautiful piece. I highly recommend you check out the link to all of her work in the show notes. Bulavinaka, everyone. My name is Rhonda Dina, and just a brief introduction um, on myself, of course. I'm from the beautiful islands towards the south of Fiji called Kandavu, and my mother is from the beautiful islands uh, 
towards the eastern side of Fiji called Lao, Lao province, specifically Venombo Lavu. Now, as for the type of arts uh, I practice, or I may, of course, use for advocacy, the one I'm most involved in is, of course, singing, um, singing and song. I'm a singer-songwriter. I've been nominated for a few awards with Fiji Performing Rights Association here. Now, one of the reasons I've always loved singing is because, well, I think Pacific Islanders generally can say the same thing. We're exposed to it very early on. It's basically in the fibres of our existence because uh, our ancestors used to, of course, pass on messages. They were all done in song. Um, the other form of art that I also practice and I have done for numerous uh, cultural events and festivals, the Melanesian Arts Festival, the Pacific Arts Festival, is, of course, dance. Meke specifically, uh, the traditional dance of Fiji. I danced the Siasia. Quite interesting because... Um, under normal circumstances, um, a trans woman like myself would not have been allowed to do that specific mecca because it's usually done by a woman, a virgin woman, um, of course, uh, presenting to an audience, uh, usually an esteemed audience, uh, which involved chiefs and other nobilities. But I was blessed enough to be selected to perform this on behalf of the University of the South Pacific. So we were representing the region, um, so to speak. This then, of course, leads into um, the, the general conversation about advocacy. Um, now, being a marginalised individual myself and being a, well, different plethora of minorities, uh, <laughs> if you can find as many minorities as you can and put them in one individual, one body, you'll probably see my picture. I'm an Indigenous trans woman. I'm also a millennial. And in terms of advocacy, I've always tried to express myself. When I was young, it was always in speech. Um, it didn't quite get me far. But uh, for somebody who's in her early 30s, I can now testify that I found arts very effective. It breaks down dividing walls, really. It's that common medium that people can relate to. And, and there's usually not much pushback because music is, is beautiful. It's wonderful to the ears. In my years uh, of working, I've offered a, quite a few songs of mine and I've been blessed to record them as videos as well to the United Nations, uh, especially UNICEF and UNDP for their mental health programs and um, negating suicide, of course, suicide prevention programs. And they have been very effective. I, I toured the country um, using this form of art. Now, if I had traveled or gone on this tour just to do a presentation, I probably wouldn't have been successful at getting them to listen to me. I probably would have had quite a few laughs in the room. Uh, apologies, I don't mean to be depressing. I have attempted to make presentations and um, a lot of people don't expect much. Now, when I'm singing though, people can't help but listen to music, especially in the context of the Pacific. We love our music. So that, that was something I, they couldn't push away. And to do it justice and to do it well and to express and emote correctly, understanding that your audience needs to relate to the message and you delivering that message authentically does wonders, really. That would only be successful for me if I had due respect. Actually, in all art forms, if we were going to choose any form of art used to advocate, we would need to do it justice. We would need to do it well. And that's one thing that I've always uh, thought was important. If I was going to sing and I was going to spread a message that was important for society to understand and absorb and 
analyze and then interpret correctly, I would have to do it well. And I'm sure a lot of people listening can also attest to this. The only way anybody can be successful in what they do is if they do it well and if they do justice to the form of art. Now, with regards to uh, Meke, Meke, the traditional form of dance that we use here in Fiji, especially the kind of Meke that I was given a chance to actually perform, I know for a fact that I wouldn't have been allowed to perform the Sea Sea under normal circumstances. But the only reason I was allowed to do so was because I actually did well at it. With comparison to the other beautiful ladies who were naturally born women and who were allowed to do it without question. And that was the only way I got ahead with it. I, I performed it. I respected my culture enough to do it well. And I ensured that I was unrivaled, really. And if I had to perform the Mecca all over again, my audience is, is the best feedback. If they loved what they saw and they got the message and they thought that I did it true to its original nature and its um, authenticity, well, there we go. Why shouldn't I do it again? And why should I let other people know that that's, that's what's important? Especially for me as a trans woman. With singing, I've been doing it ever since I knew that I existed, really. <laughs> I, I don't remember doing anything else. I, I weaseled my way into every single space available. As a child, uh, my mother was, a, um, of course, a staunch Christian. And um, especially, specifically with the Assemblies of God uh, denomination. Now, that church is uh, well known for having worship teams. Usually, our repertoire would be mostly black gospel. Or if you witness any of my music, you, you'd find the inspirations from this, uh, from um, black gospel contents. At the age of maybe three or four, uh, my mother noticed that I had a gift for singing. On Sundays, my mother would request if uh, she could have a special number. But really, she was making this request for me. So she'll make a request that I'd like to give a special number, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to call my son up. <laughs> and that would be the routine every Sunday. And that's exactly what drew me to religion, loving religion, because of the, the space that was provided for me to express my art form. That was back in the West, where I was raised. And I found myself in the capital, which is in um, the Central Eastern Division in Suva. And I was surrounded by other singers who just had access to a better platform. I got introduced to these platforms and then uh, started recording and releasing the content uh, out onto these different platforms, uh, social media. There's quite a few on YouTube as well. And um, the rest is history. Now, with regards to Meke, I was exposed to Meke when I finally joined university through the Oceania Center for Arts and Culture and Pacific Studies. Obviously, I, I, I couldn't settle with doing the, um, <laughs> the macho moves. So I committed myself to doing the, the women's um, choreographies better than the women themselves. Um, that was the only way I'd be allowed to do it if I went above and beyond what was expected and uh, because I was constantly going to be compared to those who were born biologically women, I had to do better and I had to do it justice. And that's basically uh, the history of how long I've been doing this art form and I don't see myself stopping anytime soon, although I have slowed down in terms of uh, performing. Uh, you know what they say about uh, those who can't do, they teach. So a lot of the times now that um, I can't do it anymore, I invest a lot of my time in teaching. 
I still find myself in uh, studio productions um, with uh, young and up-and-coming talents. And I still find myself teaching and, uh, of course, offering my services to judge competitions, etc. But that's pretty much it. My favourite story would be... Um, and I think it's it's basically my introduction into advocacy through the art forms. I call it artivism. Back in 2008, I went on a series of performances at the Coral Coast here in Fiji. The Coral Coast is lined with five-star hotels. We did a series of performances at different hotels. Now, at Naviti, I was told that part of my repertoire to perform that day, along with two other gorgeous gentlemen who were going to be singing back up for me, we were going to perform Isalalia. Now, the backstory to this song, it's a gentleman's homage to a lost loved one at sea. There's a lulling um, uh, music to it. It's, it's quite sad, but um, quite beautiful. The harmonies are gorgeous. And our harmonies in the Pacific are beautiful, incomparable. You can't find them in any other mainstream culture, really. Um, our harmonies are gorgeous. And if you hear most of our songs, they're quite, quite deep and rooted in emotions. Um, you'd find the same thing in this song if you get a chance. So if you go onto YouTube, you can um, search for the song. It's called Isalalia. Now, I went on as normal performing this at Leviti with a bit of a crowd, of course, but never noticing the individuals. But I stayed true to what I had mentioned earlier. I had to do justice to performance and I had to, of course, emote the message well enough for my audience to understand. After the performance and a few weeks after, I thought I did well, out of the many performances, of course, uh, after returning to the capital from the Coral Coast, we received an email. They were pursuing to collect our emails all of this time, three weeks, and they finally got it. And this, I believe, a 60 to a 70-year-old um, gentleman told us the most beautiful story. He had just recently lost his wife and had literally escaped to Fiji to to find himself at the end of the road, if you if you get the drift. Um, he was suicidal, and um, he didn't want to die anywhere near at home. He wanted to come out of the country, and he came to Fiji. He was planning on ending it there, uh, because he, he couldn't see himself living a life without his wife, who had just passed. And surprisingly, the language uh, barrier existed. He didn't understand a thing. He didn't understand a word of what I was singing about. I don't know what he did, but instantly he could relate to the message. And um, and it stopped him from what he was planning on doing. He had prepared for the end the whole time. But that one performance was what changed his mind. And the fact that music transcended the the barrier that was there uh, created by language he understood the message. He understood that he needed to go on. The memory of her was enough for him to survive and go on living a life and being a better a better human being because that's exactly what our loved ones would have wanted. They wouldn't want us to be dwelling on in a state of depression. They'd want us to live on as better people. So that message has always fueled my artivism, my advocacy. If I can change a life any life for the better. If I can give people hope, I should keep on doing it. And that's exactly the message I want to leave with everyone. Um, if you're going to choose any art form, we as Pacific Islanders, we live and breathe it. it. It flows through our veins. Understand the message. Understand the platform. 
understand the art form, respect all three, and express it well. Um, thank you so much for the platform, uh, this particular platform, so I could share my little testimony, and I hope it inspires anyone out there, really. So thank you so much. All right, so Sainama Asi, Ms. Rhonda, for your beautiful insight into your rich culture and life experience. Rhonda is Fiji's first Indigenous trans woman who is a recording artist and practices both the art of song as well as that of Indigenous dance called Meki. Art breaks down dividing walls. It's a common medium. Rhonda mentions that having the gift of a great voice Diligence and perseverance in the form of her dedication to her arts was what made her able to enter spaces that traditionally she would not have been able to exist in. And I have to admire her tenacity. That was because she did all of those arts well and did justice to them. Rhonda used her art to spread the beautiful message of compassion to the youth and to people to prevent suicide. And how beautiful is that? As a trans woman, she loves her religion because growing up, it provided her a space to express her art, and that is always great. As I mentioned before, if you can maintain your ties to your religion, it is a great thing to keep that religion close. Keep your faith close if you are able to, because those connections are what you need. As Rhonda got introduced to better platforms after she moved away, she was then able to use those platforms to spread her message and representation. Her beautiful story really shows the kind of change you can make if you're just given a platform. And that is what we are all about, Biba Pacifica. The song in which Rhonda mentions is called Isalelia, which I included a link to in the show notes, and it is so beautiful, truly. Highly recommend you check it out. Sainama Asi Rhonda, your piece was incredibly special. Okay, why don't we take a break before we listen to the next contributor? Alright, so this next Pacifica artist, his name is Saya or Isaiah, and he is a passionate young Pacifica person whose paintings struck me as I was scrolling through social media one day. I hope you enjoy his piece. Alright, so I'm a visual artist. I specialize in traditional media, so I prefer to use watercolor and acrylic paint and ink and all of that good stuff to create my art. Um, I do have a background in ceramics and pottery and also in screen printing and in Samoan Ele as well. Um, I'm a firm believer in artivism. Artists just have a very unique ability to create such thought-provoking pieces and to evoke the emotion that they want to portray through their pieces. And I've also seen art used as a way to raise awareness to current issues in the world as well, um, whether it be through climate change and how it's affecting us as Pacifico people, whether it be about the pandemic and you know washing your hands and wearing a mask, 
or whether it be about the Black Lives Matter movement. I'll actually just add in right now. I'm a firm believer of the movement. So Black Lives Matter every single day. Anyway, the role that my art has played in activism has been to raise awareness. And one of my most popular pieces that's called Misela was actually one that encapsulated that. As the world knows, back in 2019, there was a measles epidemic and that took quite a toll on Samoa and people of the Pacific as well. So I created this piece just in hopes to shed light on my personal thoughts of foreign disease in our community and within our people. That's how I came up with the piece. The piece isn't just a piece that I created for Samoa. It was created to show how I felt in general about the introduction of foreign diseases to indigenous people all over the world, especially in the Pacific we have been <laughs> introduced to so many new diseases for generations and we've lost so many people to those diseases that was all at the hands of colonization and it was just a very emotionally charged piece that i created and i'm glad that i was able to create that as well i've been practicing my art form for quite a long time I naturally gravitated toward art as a kid, and unfortunately, part of high school, I did give up art until I graduated, but something that really evolved over time was the feeling that I needed to create to receive commission and to receive popularity as opposed to creating just because I wanted to create. and. That was a very, very difficult transition for me to make. I was really eager to take commissions. And when I started taking commissions and slowly started to blow up, I no longer loved what I loved. And so that was really hard for me to deal with. And I ended up completely removing myself from art as far as a means of posting. So I would create here and there, but wasn't ever anything like I used to do. Also... Something that's evolved over time is my use of hair and my use of women in terms of the art. Most of the figures that I create are women. Actually, all of them that are popular have been women. And that's mainly because the most important people in my life have been women. And so I gravitate naturally towards that. And hair for sure has been a really big one for me as well. As most Pacific Islanders know, our hair is our story. And there's so many ties to hair and our ancestors and our mana. So when I create with the intents of provoking that emotion of having our ancestors present, um, hair is definitely a big one for me. My favorite story to come out of my art has been back in 2019 i was able to launch my social media and the launch of asiata art formerly known as asiata art and la that story in and of itself has been very difficult in the making as i mentioned i was taking commissions and then completely just shut everything off and decided to try my hand at it back um, just a little bit after when I turned 18 and graduated high school and it was very difficult but the launch itself has been very successful and I'm extremely proud of myself and getting it taken care of of course there's pros and cons mostly pros 
here's really what it <laughs> i'm remembering things as they come through so i actually decided to clean up my instagram and i received just this random prompting to just go ahead and create a separate art page to separate that from my personal feed then i kind of just went all into it and it's my favorite just because i felt like i had lost touch with myself i guess in the sense of creating this art page and creating asiata art was more so me creating myself it was me reestablishing myself as an artist and me getting back in touch with who I am as a creative. That story has been one of resilience. I'm super proud to see what I have been able to create and the spaces that I've been able to seek out and exist in. And it's just been a very big roller coaster ride. And it's amazing. I mean, this is an opportunity in and of itself, even just being on the podcast. And I'm so grateful for the platform that I had to get me there. But yeah, thank you. Feel free to follow my Instagram. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on. And my Instagram handle is Asiata Art. Feel free to search me up there and keep in touch. And have a great day. Sainama Asi Saya. One of his most popular pieces was the painting that he was referring to called Misela, which is striking to say the least. Something that he mentioned that evolved over time was his use of hair and the feminine form. And I have to say, after taking a look at his Instagram page, I can definitely see that evolution, but also it is beautiful. To me, many artists' use of hair has always struck me when it was something that they were actually good at. And Saya is actually good at it. But you can tell that he's young and starting out, but not by his art necessarily. So I highly recommend you check him out. If you ever see Misela, so it's a portrait of a anonymous woman, a womanly figure. She is wearing a tuinga as well as a ula fulamanu and an ulale. I hope I'm not butchering that. This is something that is worn. Uh, it's a traditional Samoan lei, and it's traditionally worn by the high chief's daughter or son. It is usually worn for Siva Samoa or Samoan dancing. And according to Saya, the lae is uh, traditionally made in a very specific way. And um, it is hopefully being revived now because the pieces that go into this outfit are so intricate and special. Saya was telling me that the ulale is made out of boar's tusk or sperm whale teeth, which is just crazy and awesome, and Samoans are really cool. So if you look at his piece, you'll see that everything is very specific. Everything is drawn very specifically. And then not only that, but the coloration is spot on for a Pacifica person. It is a very beautiful shade of brown. And she's also wearing a mask. Saya uses that to signify the measles epidemic in Samoa. It struck Samoa particularly hard in 2019 due to the number of people who decided to not vaccinate their children. And unfortunately, many children were lost. And so Saya's piece was really speaking to that loss. And I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, I will include a link to his Instagram page in the show notes. 
Bonus to know today, no anu si danyat. So masa gatsu kitsu tsampinfu, kitsu tano kalpuya, lo tato guahan zan saipa ni mangafau. Hello, my name is Daniel Suspedes. I'm a Tsamoru Scottish mestizo living in Corvallis, Oregon, with roots in the Mariana Islands of Guahan and Saipan. I make music under the name Tanidero. I'm a singer, songwriter, music producer, and I play a handful of different instruments, including the Scottish Highland bagpipes, the guitar, the arpeggione, which is basically a variant of the guitar that you can bow like a cello, and an Irish frame drum called a baron. I'm also a video director and producer, and that's been the primary focus of my professional vocational career for about 10 years now. I've spent time working on documentary films all over the place, short films here and there, and a couple feature films, including Laika's Kubo and the Two Strings. I started playing bagpipes around the age of 13, and I started making videos around the same time. It started as a way to do a school projects, and then I met some friends who wanted to start writing our own stories and making short films with them. I feel like just apart from technical improvements, one way my art has evolved over the years has just been to dig deeper and deeper into my personal truths. When I was younger, I didn't have a lot of guidance. I didn't come from a particularly musical family, and so I felt like my pathway to artistic legitimacy was to project myself kind of like popular artists. This was, of course, very confusing and often embarrassing, being exposed as a teen to a very Anglo-Eurocentric media industry in the 2000s. Back then, I felt like my hair wasn't straight enough, face wasn't angular enough, my eyes weren't light enough. So it's been a big reclamation for me to position myself within my art and say, this is my story, this is how I experienced it, and this is the way I want to tell it. To me, finding your voice is more about inquiring into your deep truths about how you feel about your life. Coming to where art meets activism, I feel like when most folks are advocating for a cause, there's a focus on appealing to locos and ethos, that is, logic and reason, and credibility and ethics. But the missing part of the puzzle there is, of course, pathos, uh, emotions and feelings. No amount of shouting statistics and numbers will at least initially beget an emotional response from somebody. So I feel like effective activism is all about balancing cognitive engagement with emotional engagement. The mind and the heart is essentially what I'm talking about. So when I started thinking about this idea, I felt like there are four primary ways to categorize art in sociopolitical activism. Those four categories are imaginative art, informative art, combative art, and restorative art. So with the first category of imaginative art, indigenous futurism is one of my favorite things to talk about in art in general. If you've heard of Afrofuturism, it's the same thing, but for indigenous peoples globally. This is the art that asks, what could our society look like in the future? Skip forward 50, 100, 500 years, what will we look like? What will we look like as a liberated island nation? How will our culture evolve? Which ancestral traditions, maybe ones that were disrupted by colonialism, will we have found a new connection with? What sort of sustainable lifestyles will have brought us that far? What will our relationship as Pacific people be with each other and with the planet? The role of artists in this sense is to stoke the collective imagination about who we're going to become. The next song I'm going to be releasing this year happens within a vision of the future where the people of the Marianas have reestablished our connection with traditional seafaring. So imagine a situation where sailing traditional canoes is culturally normalized again, as maybe even as the preferred mode of travel, depending on where you're going, and we can sail around and between our islands at our discretion, 
We can sail to the northern islands of Agrian and Pagan and Alamogan. Trust me when I say I'm very excited to share that one. One of my favorite parts about art in this category is how neutral it is by nature. Everyone's visions are welcome, and people's values are often quite clear and genuine. I feel like we need to have dreamers just as much as we need boots-on-the-ground activists. Because once we know where we want to be, then we can chart a course on how to get there. The next category is informative art and media. I feel like this is the category most commonly associated with traditional activism as we know it. It's focused on awareness building, it's educational, it's cognitively engaging, and in my opinion, some art forms do this better than others. Documentary filmmaking is one that I have a lot of experience with. It's pretty good, although you are operating under the assumption that the people you're going to reach want to sit down and watch the video you're going to produce, and sometimes it's hard to reach beyond people who already agree with you. Graphing design is an art form that's incredibly effective at this, I think. It's quick, it's to the point, it's easily shareable. Infographics are a great way to communicate information. Um, They make dense information accessible and appealing, which is something that activists constantly struggle with, especially since colonial empires love to hide things in numbers and graphs and big words. Musicians sometimes approach these goals in the form of like conscious rap, and there's a long tradition of folk singers like Buffy St. Marie and Joan Baez who also talk about social issues directly in their music. One thing I'll say about music that seeks to inform primarily is that it, I notice it rarely goes beyond its audiences that already agree with the message, and so sometimes it's hard for me to determine what the ultimate goal is. Which brings me to the next category of combative art. I use this term to describe art that's written explicitly for the people of this cause, or people who are ideologically adjacent to them. It's written to energize them, and aims to incite people to get involved, or get out of the way, basically. A great historical example I have experience with is the bagpipes. They were used for centuries as an instrument of war in combat up until World War I. I've read accounts of soldiers who refused to make a charge unless they had bagpipes to accompany them. Personally, I've used them in protests, marches, parades, and at sporting events. I used to run cross-country in high school, and when it wasn't my race to run, oftentimes I'd play the bagpipes for my teammates who were running to try and amp up the adrenaline. Some of my favorite contemporary examples of this kind of art come from artists like Rage Against the Machine, MIA, Run the Jewels. Their art is so passionate that it's infectious, and the lyrics force you to examine the content, and unless you've resigned yourself to complacency, it leaves you with this question of, what am I going to do about this? What are we going to do about this as a community, as a society? I released a track in July called Exhumed, and I feel like that song falls pretty squarely into this category too. I made it to speak out against the destruction and deforestation of Yiseng Sanglagua, Sentailalu, which are ancestral village sites in Guahan that the U.S. military is clearing to make way for a, you guessed it, live fire training range complex. So the military loves to center themselves in every narrative, but especially when they're stealing land and resources, uh, they'll say something along the lines of, is necessary for national security. But I wanted to flip that narrative on its head and say, no, you are trespassing here. You are disrespecting this land. This narrative is one of our island and our ancestors who lived in synchronicity with it. And so the song's message is actually pointed at my fellow Tsamoru Manielu. I say, they said they want to shoot their guns at Nanamu. So what say you? And in Tsamoru, Nanamu means your mother. So that can be taken quite literally since we're talking about our foremother's graves being desecrated here. Or it can refer to the island itself, Nanaguahan our original provider of life. So all that is to say in the context of the song, 
now that we've consciously acknowledged what's going on, you don't have a choice to go back to ignoring it. So how do you really feel about this? It's my belief that there are many Chamorros who are subscribed to support anything the U.S. military does because of how painful it would be to acknowledge the powerlessness of where we find ourselves. To see how little we truly matter to those people and to their war machine is such a heavy thing to face. How does one even begin to reconcile with the loss that we've experienced as a result of colonialism at large? This brings me to the final category of restorative art. This to me is the most overlooked category of art as it relates to activism, and it might be a little counterintuitive at first, because it is focused somewhat individually rather than communally. So when we come together as a community to enact change, we put our personal differences and baggage aside for the sake of the common objective. This is great for the movement, but who takes care of us at the end of the day? Some of us may not have the support networks that others do, and for me, that's where art comes in. I feel that mental health and emotional wellness is so important to just our own longevity as activists. Mental health is also just a widespread issue all across the Pacific, and so I like to give particular emphasis to this category. Whereas all the prior categories are generally focused on the outward work of activism, I like to think of this as the inward work, which is just as essential. Even from a productivity standpoint, if the way we approach activism leads us to mental breakdowns on a regular basis, we can't serve our movements. We can't serve our islands without resilient hearts and minds. And that's what this kind of art is good for. Personally, I feel like art can serve as an entry point into grief and other deep emotional processing that I lack the cognitive vocabulary to accomplish by myself. Growing up, I wasn't taught how to grieve, or that it was important. And I don't necessarily blame my parents for that either, because I don't think they were given the tools to know how to grieve themselves. I suspect this might be the case for many across the Pacific, too. You know, there's this pervasive belief that showing emotions is a sign of weakness, and that emotions are best kept hidden from the community. Music has personally been the source of the greatest emotional catharsis I've ever experienced in my life. And I think there's immense power in acknowledging our personal truths, however heavy they are, whether that's something like, I feel broken, I feel lost, or I feel hopeless. These are things that I feel like most of us experience, but typically hide from each other for the sake of the outward work, or for the sake of others. It kind of makes sense why that is, but it doesn't serve us individually to operate that way. Music helps me honor my emotional experience in ways that I don't always know how to do in the company of others, and sometimes I don't know how to do it at all. They always feel like the most terrifying thing before I realize what they are, but the truth is that when I turn towards these feelings instead of running away from them, I have no choice but to feel the weight of what they carry. And maybe those moments are super heavy and exhausting, but I always move through them feeling renewed, energized, and more centered in myself. Which is basically to say, if I want to show up for others, I have to show up for myself too. Anyway, these are the four categories where I feel like artists can be real assets to activism through our work. I don't think I ever start out a creative project with the idea of doing something in one of these categories, but sometimes if I'm stuck, it helps me to think like, what am I trying to accomplish with this song? Or like, who is it for? So, for the privilege of being on the Deep Pacific podcast, I really enjoyed the chance to get to speak on this topic since it sums up so much of what gives my life and my work meaning. I personally can't wait to see what the future holds for indigenous artists 
all over the world. So, hasta aquí. Sainam Asi. All right. Sainam Asi Danyet, or Dani Deru, for your awesome and surprisingly educational and beautiful piece. Danyet definitely appealed to my mind and heart with his piece. Uh, he is a singer-songwriter as well as a video producer and plays a couple of instruments and, you know, basically Superman and cool person, definitely. He says that his art evolved by digging deep into his personal truths. I loved Danyet's vulnerability and how open he was to exposing his truths so that we could see his process and his evolution. And I gotta say, it's beautiful. He puts forth a great question. What could our society look like in the future? Indigenous futurism. Who are we going to become? Great things to think about, definitely. Danyat released a beautiful song recently, and he was referring to it in his piece called Exhumed. That was his way of his activism speaking about how the military stole Chamorro lands and trespassed and disrespected them. They say they want to point their guns at your motherland. What say you? Can you ignore this now that it's in front of you? And he's speaking specifically to the Chamorro people. Me. I'm one of them. And you know what? I've uh, actually, once it was in front of me, I never ignored this fact. I consume anti-military and uh, military propaganda just so that I can be very informed of this. I know that it's incredibly traumatic. It's not for everybody. Um, definitely consume as you are able to. I'm really happy that there is a Chamorro artist out there talking about social issues in his music in a different way. So thank you, Danette, for the lovely art you put out into the world. He also mentioned four types of art and included really great examples there, which is freaking awesome. And also another thing that he touched upon was that showing emotions are a sign of weakness for many Pacifica people. And, you know, for us, it's best to keep them hidden because feeling broken, lost, or hopeless, that's a common experience for people in general, but uh, for us Pacifica people, it is very much amplified by our circumstances that we find ourselves in, that we were born into. And sometimes we must embrace and feel the weight of that, that heaviness. And when we do, if we can use art to center ourselves, then we can face those feelings head on, and from then on, we can re-energize ourselves and gain meaning in our lives by continuing to advocate where we are able to. I think basically trying to include all these different forms of art and messaging in your life so that you're balanced and you can remain strong and centered was the takeaway there. Please take care of yourselves, my awesome Pacifica listeners. And find Danidero's music on Apple Music or Spotify under that name. Check out some of the links to his art, I will post them in the show notes. Aloha, naimbag nga aldaw kadakayo amin. Kumusta, mga kasama? My name is Bryant de Venecia. I am a Filipino settler in the occupied kingdom of Hawaii. I'll be continuing the conversation about artivism. For me, art is both healing and fighting. I've always been doing art for as long as I can remember. It started with an obsession with abstract art using oil pastels as a kid, 
and then I transitioned to watercolor to recreate my favorite landscapes. Now I do digital portraits. Art for me is recreating beauty, defiance for its impermanence and fleeting nature. My growth as an artist is aligned with my journey of self-love and being proud of my identity as a queer immigrant Filipino settler. When I paint portraits, I focus on the beauty of brown skin and eyes, how light reaches and reacts to the surface of our body, things that I never saw growing up, learning about Western art and history. I've discovered how challenging it is to paint darker skin tones, how it requires me to be more intentional of the process. For example, mixing beautiful red hues of mahogany or rosewood with the soothing yellow of ripe mango, balanced by the cool blues of the sea. How combining these colors in very delicate amounts creates the warm tones of our skin and values of clay, copper, bronze, and honey. Each brushstroke is an act to capture the beauty that is a lot of times forced to be invisible. Art played a big role in decolonizing my mentality and unlearning colorism and internalized racism, which are things that I've learned growing up in the Philippines. It is both humbling and empowering to learn from other artists of color who constantly challenge our thinking, the way we see beauty and worthiness. Joshua Luna, a Filipino comic book artist, pointed out in one of his work, quote, For Filipinos and other people of color, drawing your face is a radical act when media and other institutions teach you to hate it. From an early age, we are taught to erase ourselves and other people of color, but self-love puts us back in the picture, unquote. This spoke deeply to me as a Filipino artist who first learned about the Renaissance and modernism before I was able to study the way my people did art. It is mind-blowing how art is deeply intertwined with our identities. Before colonization, to create something is to breathe. We sculpted the faces of our Anito or ancestors, created beautiful yet intricate writing systems. The Tiboli women in South Cotabato weaved tinalat, patterns they saw in their dreams, which is for them a spiritual experience. Our cousins from the Ifugao carved magnificent terraces into the mountains of Banawe to feed their people, although a lot of these practices have been erased due to imperialism and continued exploitation of our lands. The artistry remains in our people's blood. Art is also the center of my work as an organizer in the labor movement. I am currently working as a communications organizer with the labor union Unite Here Local 5 in Hawaii, where we represent workers in the hospitality and healthcare industry. The majority of our members are Filipino and other Pacific Islanders who, because of so many layers brought by colonization and capitalism, are forced to work in the tourism industry, which exploits us, the land, the cultures, and the people. I see my work in communications as the one who creates and prepares the canvas for stories. It may be about an immigrant hotel worker fighting for better wages for their families, our frontline healthcare worker organizing for workplace safety. We make sure that these stories and voices are heard everywhere, whether it be through photos, videos, flyers, 
social media content, news, banners, and protest signs. We use these different artistic media to tell stories that would otherwise be unheard and to take up spaces that would have been occupied by our oppressors. Art, for me, became a strategy in the trenches of the labor movement and our daily struggles as people of color. A part of me resents the violence of it. But in this revolution against capitalism, when all we have are our voices, our senses, and each other, art is a weapon. To think of it, everything we create as people of color is activism. Our pieces, an ode to the hundreds of years of being colonized, oppressed, and restrained. Art is a war cry in a world that works so actively and intentionally to silence us. It is confronting the systems in place that perpetuate our suffering. Art is fighting as much as it is healing. It is beauty as a reflection of our genealogies. It is also resistance as a manifestation of our resilience. Sapagkat ang kalayaan ng ating bayan ay nananatili sa katotohanan ng ating lahi. For the freedom of our land remains in the truth of our people. To create art is to speak our truth. Thank you so much for listening. All right, Sainama Asi Bryant for your beautiful, insightful piece as always. Art is both healing and fighting for activists who use art. Practicing art as Indigenous people really forces you to practice your art with intentionality, as Bryant mentioned, because even in the artistic world, you know, some of the most iconic pieces, the Mona Lisa, the Greek statues, the mythologies that are celebrated, are also white. So, who do we turn to as Pacifica artists and creators for pieces of inspiration, for mentorship, for muses? What iconic pieces do we know? Why are so many of the pieces we see not celebrated more? I just, I wish we were educated more on our myths at school, growing up, and that is really something that needs to change. Bryant says that he uses art and digital media in his job as a labor organizer and communications, as the one who creates and prepares the canvas for stories of the people in the labor union he represents. So he uses art as a strategy, as a tool, and that is incredibly smart and a great idea. You can find Bryant's art on his artistic Instagram page, Bry Lee Art, or you can check in the show notes for his link, and that is bry.lli.art. Buenas and half a day, everyone. My name is Simone Perez. I am a fourth year attending university in Hawaii, born and raised on the island of Guam. And I just want to say that I'm very honored to be here. Just because I've never really um, seen myself as an artist until very recently when the term was used to describe to what I do. And so bear with me, but I'm very happy to be here and very happy to share a little bit of what I know and what I've learned so far and things like that. My art has helped me grieve the loss of myself at a certain point in time and my direction and my art 
has been my healing process, you know, a, a way for me to invest my love in other people and things and honestly in myself too. My art has helped me grow in a direction I honestly never thought was possible and most importantly, it's given me hope. When I first started to make marmars or flower crowns or lepo'os or hakules, whatever you feel comfortable calling them, um, I was really going through it. I thought I was in the final steps of what I was going through at the time. You know, um, healing is definitely not a linear process. It is definitely something else. Um, I was coming out of this feeling very similar to what, you know, could be called high-functioning depression. Um, I don't want to self-diagnose or anything, but, you know, I've, it could be. And you know, when you're back home after being away from college, you can't really avoid what you're feeling and you know, I just, um, you kind of have to deal with it. I know that when you're making warmers or working with flowers, basically, you kind of have to be thinking these happy, good thoughts and things like that. But in retrospect, and quite honestly, I don't think that's how I was feeling at all, deep, deep down. Very deep down, like Mariana's Trench, deep down. I had so much more to unpack looking back at it now. Before I came back home, I'd buy myself a bouquet of flowers almost every week, which is definitely a habit I couldn't bring to Guam, where the average bouquet cost maybe, like, good okay um cost maybe 35 to 45 dollars i also started to make more mars because a good friend of mine had also started to make them as well flowers and more mars in general are things i've always greatly appreciated and never really thought to take part in in any way um, as I started to make these marmors like a little over a year ago, I'd like to think it really helped my healing process and honestly who I am as a person in general. Throughout this, I became set on continuously making them, practicing and experimenting things like that and giving them to the different people, mostly women, but honestly, I love seeing them on men that have helped me develop a better sense of who I am. And it was really my way of putting my love I couldn't give to a certain someone into something I love or people that deserved my love or helped me find the courage to love again in a way. And so the love was always there. There was always just some days the pings of sadness were definitely higher frequencies than normal. But I mean, what is art without the intense emotions we all feel? Art would be very boring if that did not exist in any artist. But anyways, when I went back to school, it definitely got a lot harder to practice. I think one of my favorite things in the beginning when I first started was it took me less than an hour to make them, like after I kept doing it. I'm not gonna get into like the technical things, but yeah. And then, so when I actually made them every once in a while, the handful of opportunities I had to make them, it took me like two hours, not including the time it took to like pick the flowers around campus or anything or separate it, whatever. But then again, like those were very peaceful two hours that was in contrast to my busy college life. 
so the magic really didn't happen again until I came back home a couple months ago, which was honestly because of the pandemic. And since then, I've been able to really feel the reality of my dreams. I feel as if I've grown in all directions or aspects possible. And I'm constantly doing so because, well, if you stop growing, that honestly means that you are dead. And um, I'm praying for a long life. <laughs> um, reflecting on the past year has me thinking of this one quote I stumbled on a few years ago. And it's not by Pacific Islander, unfortunately, but it did help me think about a lot of things in my life. And I thought about it um, when I was thinking what kind of story I wanted to tell for this podcast episode and like the whole theme of this episode. It's by Howard Zinn. It's to be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents and to live now as we think human beings should live. In defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory. And to me, this is honestly the role that art plays in activism. It helps us channel how we're feeling into different things that'll help people understand hopefully how we're feeling and seeing all the good my art has done for me and the effect that I hope it has on the same people that see it, or at least that people would have for art in general, feels good, you know? And to be able to contribute to that has really given me hope and the kind of person I want to be and what I want to put out into the world. And that is not just like pretty things, but like things to help people feel more of who they are. And, you know, they might just be just flowers to some people, but for me, it will always be an extension of who I am. And while I've practiced other types of art, this is what has given me the most sense of peace and direction and clarity. And I don't think I've ever felt this in tune with myself. Um, I do hope that more people start pursuing things that help them feel more in tune. I think the world would be a lot easier and kinder place to live in. I can't really remember if I had my like aha moment to start making more Mars. I just, I really remember seeing my friend text me about it, I think, or she posted it, I can't remember. And then um, it's really bad that I did this, but it was like midnight and I actually just went right outside and picked a couple flowers, which I know now is not very good to do. And um, also the leaves I used, if you ingest them, are poisonous. And, um, and yeah, I've definitely come a very long way. And I kind of just started from there. And then um, I knew it looked like a little, um, a little funny, but you know, it was my very first one and I didn't have the technique down anything at all. But I think for the first time in my life, I felt propelled to do more. I didn't feel any pressure to do more. I, f I just felt like, like attracted and I felt like pulled to like to just continue to do so 
And then what also helped me too um, was around this time was my grandparents' uh, 60th wedding anniversary. So they also had a lot of like leftover flowers from their, and um, what do you call it, from their little like um, party that they hosted, which was really cool. So I got to use a lot of like baby's breath and um, orchids and things like that. So that like made um, getting into it a lot easier because at the time I didn't have to pick anything just yet. And and yeah. Um, and then from then on, it just I kind of just stuck with it. I I really loved and well, honestly, will continue to love working with flowers. It's helped me have a greater connection to um, to the land and everything. And I just never, I was never really an outdoorsy girl before, just because mosquitoes love me and. Um, I wasn't a fan of the humidity and things like that, but I'm definitely, I'm still not a fan of mosquitoes or the humidity, but honestly being surrounded by and working with um, plants and things has made my outdoors experience so much greater and so much more like wholesome, you know, and I just, throughout everything, I've, I've just never felt this connected to anything I've done in my life so far, so it's a really good feeling. My favorite story that I've ever heard or that's ever come out of this so far is my mom telling me one time, you know, we were driving around and I'm always constantly looking for um, different flowers in public, kind of private places I appreciate up close. Um, and she told me, you know, Simone, I never really noticed um, all these different flowers and all these different beautiful plants and things that we have on the island i just didn't know they existed and i feel like that's something that like it's a metaphor kind of to me at least how a lot of people might view guam in general and that we just have so much to offer and so much is out there and like my main goal is to keep highlighting all the beauty that guam has to offer and yeah thank you for listening Okay, sainamaase to you, Simone Gininguahan, for your incredibly beautiful and personal piece. I wanted to clarify that although Simone has just recently began to practice the art of making mars, or uh, she refers to them as marmars, they're also known in Chamorro as coronan flores. It is already having a huge effect on her mindset, as she mentioned, and I can tell, because she says that she has never felt so connected to herself and to the outdoors before. And I love that. Feeling that connection, if that is what your art brings you, connection to things, to places, to people, then by all means, practice art as much as you possibly can. Another thing I wanted to clarify is that there were follow-up words Simone uses, more, more, or more, is the same thing as Corona and Flores, and it is a rich aspect of Chamorro culture because there were Falawash people who settled in the CNMI chose to share this land with us, and we chose to share our land with them. You know, they could have gone anywhere in the Pacific after their land was devastated by typhoons, but I am so happy that they chose to enrich our culture by settling in the Marianas. Corona and Flores also means flower crown, um, I am unsure of the significance of them in Rafalawash culture, to be honest, because I am not Rafalawash. However, that is definitely a topic that we can cover in a future episode. 
So Simone says that she's always had this love for flowers. And it took her going through some really bad times in her life to really feel that love blossom and come out. And she had to, just like Daniette said in his piece, she had to feel the bottom. She had to go through it to emerge on the other side, more whole and more connected to herself. And when she makes these Mars or Corona Flores, she's basically weaving a part of her love into every piece. And she gives that out to people. And, you know, whether you're selling your art or whether you're giving it freely, whether it's free to see or you have to pay, however you want to get your art out into the world, I am a total supporter of it. So long as it's not a capitalist enterprise, I am totally for it. Simone's art page is Betdigal on Instagram, which I will include in the show notes. I highly recommend you check her out. Flowers are always something that brightens people's day, and they are an important part of many cultures for a reason. My mother found the letters of my name hidden behind stars and between iridescent pearls. With her delicate fingers, she weaved ferns around hibiscus. The letters of my name stuck to her pareo like pollen. Hire, love, stuck to her fingers like plumeria sap. Tiare tucked behind her ear, a tua arriving on translucent rain-soaked petals. Pitate hung in the air as she strung the horizon between tea leaves. Teo tua hire, my name resonates in my na'o, reverberating against scar tissue, reminding me to breathe. We become our names. I wonder if my mother knew what she was getting herself into when she befriended the stars. I am a poet. It has taken me a long time to say that in all honesty. I used to feel like an imposter or a poser when I would say that I write. But now my poetry is shared with Tahitian kids learning English back home in Tahiti. When I was 13 writing my first poems, I never would have thought I would be speaking on a podcast right now, sharing my poetry like this. This is truly my wildest dream. That's what art is. Our heart and soul made tangible, made literate, vocalized, seen, felt. When Artupuna lived in relationship with the land, they spent much time on art. Art has been a specialty in the Pacific for millennia. From the Lapita pottery in the West to the dances across the Pacific, from Hula to Oritahiti, Maori Ura, and so many more. Marshallese women are some of the most intricate and beautiful weavers in the world, creating stunning works of art ranging from jewelry to mats and blankets. We all know the importance of our tattoos. For Pacific Islanders, our tattoos are so incredibly special. Our tattoos are our signifiers. Our tattoos are what tells our fellow Pacific Islanders, I am one of you. We are of the same sea. This is my story. Miles away from home, the ocean has remained a connection rather than a barrier. When I was in San Francisco last year, I was walking down the street and saw a delivery man that looked like a Hawaiian uncle I would see working at home in Hawaii. Despite the aching, blistering cold, it felt like I was back home just for that moment. I looked closer and saw his sleeve slide up, revealing his Hawaiian tattoo. We belong to the same sea. We know the same land. We are connected even though we didn't know each other. I met a Maori woman on that trip too. She was my Uber driver. We started talking and I recognized her accent, so I asked if she was from Aotearoa. 
She was surprised that I knew she was from Aotearoa, saying most people guess Australia instead. I told her that I was Tahitian and that I know a Maori accent very well. She told me she was Maori and Fijian. We connected instantly, talking about the warm rains in our island homes, the beating sun and achingly beautiful ocean. She told me she missed how kind everyone is in the islands and how people on the continent aren't like that anymore. She told me of her experiences at an appropriated kava bar where the kava didn't taste right and the server's historical rundown was inaccurate. We hugged goodbye. My heart was filled with such warmth as I relished in the glow of her mana. As Pacific Islanders, poetry is in our blood. We come from the ocean's dualistic depths. Our minds are layered with beauty and intricacies meant to be shared and exchanged. This is why the Pacific is known for our musical talent. No sound is more healing than the Tahitian ukulele, similar to the Hawaiian ukulele, only more high-pitched. I can still feel the oli we chanted on the mauna with the kupuna, the kupuna defending their sacred land through dance and song, channeling papa and wakea themselves. Their movements were influenced by mona a wakea herself. Their words carried the weight of decades of colonization and occupation. I would like to establish that my presence on the Mauna was in utmost respect and support of the Hawaiian people. I am a settler on these lands, though I come from the South Pacific and I'm indigenous. I love this land dearly, but this land does not belong to me. It is my duty as a settler and as an indigenous woman to fight for the decolonization and restoration of sovereignty for the Hawaiian kingdom. Any less would make me a colonizer, quite frankly. But this is about art. One of my dear friends, Kahea, is an incredibly gifted Kanaka Maoli singer and songwriter. She stands in firm support of the deoccupation of Hawaii. Art is how our people gave thanks to the gods, gave thanks to the land and ocean we belong to. This has not changed. Our people still paint, draw, write songs about, write poems about, dance about, weave for the ocean and the stars and the land. This has remained constant in the thousands of years we have inhabited the Pacific. We must remember the importance of art in our lives. I am speaking from a position of so much privilege, and I hope to use this privilege to guarantee that all people are able to spend the time necessary to create. We must first establish the basic requirement that people are provided for, that people care for the land and relish in the fruits of their labor. Then we are able to create fully, passionately, the way we were meant to. Marururoa for listening. I had learned the meaning of her name when I first invited her to be a contributor on the podcast, and I thought it was beautiful, but when she explained her name here in her piece, it really was something else. Poets have this power of speaking to our heart, like literally the very innermost depths of our na'au. And as she said, you know, we become our names. I really do think that because for me, my name is Hawaiian and I am actually Chamorro. I think that my name is a blessing because although I am not Hawaiian, I feel a connection to all of the Pacific and this name really reinforces that connection. So Tea Tuahere's name, it's just so beautiful and her piece was just so poetic and perfect as always. I joke around that her and Toa are going to have fandoms and what they're going to do is one day they're going to engage in an epic showdown and I would love to see that. (laughs) 
Um, but anyway, getting back to the point. As she said, art is our heart and soul made tangible, made literate, vocalized, seen, and felt. It is pottery, dances, chants, songs, weaving, jewelry, mats, blankets, tattoos, ukulele. It is our identity. It connects us, even when we don't know each other. She saw a man with a Polynesian tattoo and she already knew. She heard the lilt of Aotearoa in a Uber driver's accent. Our words carry the weight of decades of colonization. I will post the link to Tea Tuahere's blog in the show notes. I really recommend you check it out. She has so many great pieces there. One of her pieces will be featured on our Instagram and Twitter feed. So definitely check it out. Sainama Asite Tuhere again for your beautiful piece. It always shakes me to my core. Awesome. So that was the end of all of our contributors. I really appreciate every single one. And I hope you do too, my dear listener. I really hope you do. One last question I have for you today is... Do you consider yourself a quote-unquote activist? Are you a Pacifica artist? If so, how do you use art in your activism? How has your art been shaped by that advocacy? Let us know. I'm super excited to hear. How about you take a break and then you can come back and we will go really quickly into this paper on Pacifica scientists and diversity in Aotearoa, Sainama Asi. Awesome. So also wanted to give a shout out to our first and only sponsor on Guahan, the ever awesome Cafe Gucha, which is right now shut down because Guam's in PCOR 1. We're all shut down because we're experiencing double digit rises in cases. So Cafe Gucha is a sustainable, small, locally owned cafe that offers beautiful Instagram-worthy and organic food and drink options. If you are living on Guahan, I personally recommend trying their vegan eggplant panini next time, but also adding cheese for more melty goodness. Oh, I'm so hungry right now. My mouth is watering. Check them out on Instagram at Cafe Goodcha and follow them already for beautiful visuals and to support a cafe that composts and offers older to-go items in compostable packaging. Cafe Goodcha on Guam with Potato and Mayo, the Rescue Booney Dog mascots. Check them out. Alright, so our article today is entitled Underrepresented and Overlooked. Maori and Pacifica scientists in Aotearoa, New Zealand's universities and Crown Research Institutes. It was published this year, 2020, a really freaking awesome year, right? And it is by Tara G. McAllister, Sariani Naipi, Elizabeth Wilson, Daniel Hikuroa, and Leilani Walker, all of whom have ties to the Pacific or are Pacifica people, which is freaking awesome freaking awesome. Tara McAllister has worked on numerous publications recently. She is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Auckland and she has skills and expertise in a number of fields including biodiversity, water quality, ecology, 
this article was published by the Journal of the Royal Society of New Zealand. And it is very significant because it basically dives into the representation of Pacifica and Maori scientists in a Pacifica place like Aotearoa, right? So you would expect in a place like Aotearoa, it's a part of Oceania, that it would have a lot of representation from Pacifica scientists. But in actuality, the paper actually found that between 2008 and 2018, they collected data And this data showed that the Maori and Pacifica scientists were severely underrepresented in Aotearoa's universities and crown research institutes. So although the universities could say all they wanted, that they valued diversity and they could include it even in their statement of values, this research found that actually there has been very little change in the overall percentage of Maori and Pacifica scientists employed for at least 11 years, and one university did not employ a single Maori or Pacifica academic in their science department between 2008 to 2018. That's 10 years of an oceanic university that did not employ a Pacifica academic. That is just nuts. So... The paper says, we highlight the urgent need for institutions to improve how they collect and disseminate data that speaks to the diversity of their employees. We present data that illustrates that universities and crown research institutes are failing to build a sustainable Maori and Pacifica scientists workforce and that these institutions need to begin to recruit, retain and promote Maori and Pacifica scientists. And honestly, I have to agree. Uh, Being that I am a Pacifica scientist in the making, I want to get into the field of coral reef biodiversity or microbiology or, you know, conservation in general. And hearing something like this really affects me because it's it literally affects me. They even found that because data was not disaggregated by faculty, the data on the number of Maori and Pacifica academics was not openly available because it was all aggregated into uh, one thing. And so it says that previous research has shown that very few Maori academics exist outside of Maori departments, and it remains difficult to access quantitative data on their lived experience as universities continue to silence reports. That makes sense, actually, that universities would silence reports because they don't want to know that they really only have all white people on their boards and doing research and that they do these research to exploit the indigenous people, really. So the paper highlights that to ensure that the aspirations championed within the diversity statements of these universities are met, what we first need is open and accurate reporting on the diversity of people employed within the scientific workforce. And currently there is a gap, a significant gap of openly available data to investigate this. So um, including in the annual report, although some do contain some select data, they don't always present it in a meaningful and consistent way. And it's also not always publicly available. So this paper really dove deep into that and really found the percent values of the increase of Pacifica scientists. And it's really startling how little that percent value goes up in ensuing years. 
This was a really good paper. Uh, it was a very quick read, great to read, easy, although it did include tables of values, which are always intimidating to people for a good reason. Um, it also just included really easy, quick breakdowns of what those values meant, and it wasn't uh, tied down by too much jargon. Another thing that this kind of sheds light on is that overseas scientists or scientists with international experience tend to be valued more than those from home or from Aotearoa, which it's mentioned in the paper too. They likely have very little understanding of things that are highly important within the context of the university's place, which is Aotearoa. So... Because of this data, it definitely brings to light that urgent action is needed to address this lack of diversity. This paper is basically a challenge, and I love to see it. And also another note is that although Aotearoa is a Maori name for New Zealand's North Island, to reflect the nation's bicultural foundation, it is also commonly used in the context of meaning the whole of New Zealand. So that's really interesting. I did not even know that. Um, definitely check the paper out. I will include a link to it in the show notes. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening and tuning in to this very special episode on Deep Pacific Artivism. I feel like, although I'm not an artist myself, this topic speaks very strongly to many people, especially right now. Guahan is going back into lockdown because of our increase in COVID cases and many other places also are in various forms of lockdown. Hopefully, here on Guahan, we are definitely praying and hoping for RIMPAC to be cancelled, for Hawaii's case counts on COVID to go down. Um, but they, like Guahan, have no say in preventing new military coming in from the states. So I'm, I'm not very hopeful on that front. I hope that they can, but we'll see how that goes. Thank you again. And please, if there's anybody that you resonated with in this episode, reach out to us and let us know. Thank you. And in our next episode, we are kind of going back to the basics. I know we've been really diving into these topics, but it's also very important to get an overview of the basics. So we are going back to that on our next episode because it will be on the subject of values, just values in general, Pacifica values. And I think that that's something that you'll definitely be able to hear from more people about. I hope that it resonates with you, my awesome listener. You'll hear from us next time. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Deep Pacific Pod to keep up with our updates. Sainama Asi, this is the end of the episode. I appreciate you and thank you for listening. <laughs>